This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome once again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be talking about Bradbury's house, or should I say houses, plural. Some of the places Ray lived in his long life. My guest will be Elizabeth Nahum Albright, the photographer whose current exhibition is called I Saw It at Ray's House. When Ray Bradbury was a child in Illinois, he lived at 11 South St. James Street in Waukegan. Ray's biographer Sam Weller describes that house as modest and ordinary. It had uh, one bedroom, a tiny kitchen, a dining room and a living room which doubled as the Bradbury boys' bedroom. Ray wrote a story, uh, The Thing at the Top of the Stairs, which is apparently inspired by the staircase that led from the living room, his bedroom, up into the bathroom. Here's a passage from that story where the author returns to his hometown. Lord, he laughed, there it is, my house. And it was empty and a for-sale sign stood out by the sidewalk. There was the white clapboard front, with a large porch to one side, and a smaller one out front. There was the front door, and, beyond, the parlour, where he had lain on the fold-out bed with his brother, sweating the night hours as everyone else slept and dreamed. And to the right, the dining room, and the door that led to the hall, and the stairs, that moved up into the eternal night. He moved up the walk towards the side porch door. The thing now, what shape had it been, and colour, and size? Did it have a smoking face, and grotto teeth, and hellfire-burning Baskerville eyes? Did it ever whisper, or murmur, or moan? Next door in Waukegan was Ray's grandparents' house, at 619 Washington. Now this was a much larger place and after Ray's grandfather died his grandmother turned it into a boarding house um, letting out three of the rooms I think and this inspired another story um, The Man Upstairs which is about a mysterious boarder. Now there's a particular feature of the grandparents house which Ray described in a couple of stories actually both The Man Upstairs and The Strawberry Window. As you might guess from the title, it was a window. Here's how Ray describes it in The Man Upstairs. Halfway to the second floor was a large, sun-filled window, framed by six-inch panes of orange, purple, blue, red and burgundy glass. In the enchanted early mornings, when the sun fell to strike the landing and slide down the stair banister, Douglas stood entranced at this window, peering at the world, through the multicoloured panes. And for comparison, here's the same inspiration showing through in another story, The Strawberry Window. Ray writes, 
In his dream, he was shutting the front door with its strawberry window and lemon window. Notice how it's part of a door in this story. It goes on. Two dozen panes squared around the one big pane, coloured of fruit wines and gelatins and cool water ices. The narrator describes the effects of each piece of coloured glass finally getting to the strawberry glass. At last, the strawberry glass perpetually bathed the town in roseate warmth, carpeted the world in pink sunrise, and made the cut lawn seem imported from some Persian rug bazaar. The strawberry window, best of all, cured people of their paleness, warmed the cold rain, and set the blowing, shifting February snows afire. I love the way the purely optical effect of the glass is transformed into a whole range of associated images and feelings. It's, it's really good. Between 1942 and 1945, when he was in his early 20s, Bradbury worked from the garage of his parents' house. By now, they had upped sticks, travelled across country and were living in Venice Beach in California. And just 50 feet away from the garage where Ray did his writing, visible through the window, was a powerhouse. One of those little blockhouses with electrical whatevers, transformers inside. And that was the inspiration for a short story he wrote called Powerhouse. And that was one of his earliest award winners. And it appeared in the annual O. Henry Prize Stories anthology. It's a great story. And you can find it nowadays in The Golden Apples of the Sun and The Stories of Ray Bradbury. For much of his adult life, though, Ray lived in the Cheviot Hills in Los Angeles in a yellow house. There's a strange thing. I've heard people call it a little yellow house, but I've also heard people call it the big yellow house. I guess a lot depends on how big your own house is as to how you describe it. Now, I personally had the good fortune to enter the house on two occasions, and to me, it was both big and small. What made it seem small was the fact that it was partly hidden. You could only see part of it because of the trees, and some of it was underground, it was on a hillside. And another thing that made it seem small when I was inside the house was that by this stage of his life, Ray was 90 years old, he would spend most of his time in one small room, surrounded by so much stuff. While I was there, I think I saw two other rooms, uh, which gave a glimpse of how much more house there was. And it's from those other rooms that I got the impression of a much bigger house. Probably the most famous part of Ray's Yellow House was his basement, which we've talked about before on the podcast. The basement is where Ray did most of his work. It's where his desk was, his typewriter, his filing cabinets. In fact, from what I can gather, the basement was on more than one level, slowly working down through the house until it reached the garage, which was on a lower level. It's the office part of the basement, which has now been reconstructed for the Centre for Ray Bradbury's Studies in Indianapolis, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Now, as far as I can recall, Ray didn't write very much about the Yellow House, but it does figure in many of the interviews you'll read, and some of the TV interviews that you can find if you go looking on YouTube. It also features in a really neat comic strip 
which appeared in Shadow Show, which was a, a short-run comic series published by IDW and based on the anthology of the same name, edited by Sam Weller. Issue three of Shadow Show includes Sam's story, Live Forever, and it's brought to life by two artists, Mark Sexton and Michael Spicer. And it shows a reporter, Michael Joy, so-called, arriving at the house to interview Ray Bradbury. Except Michael Joy looks really rather a lot like Sam Weller. And I mean photographically accurately like Sam. And the same holds true for the entire strip. Uh, Ray, the house, everything. Although the strip is made up of line drawings, beautifully inked and coloured, it's a remarkably accurate rendition of the people and the various rooms of the house, including the basement office. I'll try and put some images from the strip on my website. Sadly, of course, Ray passed away in 2012. Um, many of his effects, his manuscripts, his filing cabinets, his awards, his professional effects, were bequeathed to his longtime bibliographer, the artist Don Albright. Don, in turn, generously gifted much of it to the Centre for Ray Bradbury's Studies so that it would become accessible to future generations. And indeed, it now is. Uh, the Bradbury Centre, as we've heard in previous episodes, allows people to visit and view the reconstruction of the office and access Ray's papers and books and so on. Fortunately for us, the spirit of the Yellow House was captured by Don's daughter, the photographer Elizabeth Nahum Albright. As you'll hear in this week's interview, Elizabeth had been visiting Ray's house since she was a child, and she was present as Ray's papers were being catalogued and boxed for shipping out to Indiana. Her remarkable photographic record of this sad time of transition formed the basis of a New York exhibition, I Saw It at Ray's House. The exhibition was later restaged in Indiana with the help of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies, and this year, 2020, it was due to be exhibited again in Tribeca, in Soho Photo Gallery. Unfortunately for New York, a physical exhibition wasn't possible due to COVID-19. Where have we heard that before? But fortunately for those of us outside of New York, Soho Photo Gallery has placed it online. So right now, in August of 2020, for the first time, you can view the exhibition wherever you are. I'll put a link to the exhibition in the show notes on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk and I strongly recommend that you take a look perhaps while you listen to the rest of this podcast So today's guest on Bradbury 100 first met Ray when she was a child and now she's a successful photographer Let's meet Elizabeth Nahum Albright. Joining me today on Bradbury 100 is photographer Elizabeth Nahum Albright. Based in Brooklyn, she primarily uses film and alternative darkroom processes, working to capture quiet moments and intimate portraits. Her exhibition, I Saw It at Ray's House, reveals intimate detail of Ray Bradbury's house. Elizabeth, I believe you were quite young when you first visited Ray Bradbury's house. What do you remember of those earliest visits? Well, my first visit, I was eight years old. 
And the, I mean, the most vivid memory is meeting him for the first time, like walking up the stairs to that big yellow house, which seemed never ending. I had begged my dad to take me for years, you know, and finally I was meeting him and it didn't really hit me until I was walking up those stairs, how like gigantic this was, you know, like this was Ray Bradbury. And he opened the door and I was like clinging to my dad. I was suddenly very nervous to meet him. And he threw the door open and he was like, Elizabeth, it's like, I'm your godfather. So nice to finally meet you. And he gave me a big hug. And so that was always is like the moment that sticks out most from that first visit. Of course, I was also the first woman that they invited to their dinner at the Queen Mary. So every time my dad would come into town, Ray, Stan Freeberg, Herb Yellen, Dennis Etchison, and Bill Nolan, and my dad would always go out to dinner at the Queen Mary towards the end of my dad's trip. And it was always very much a boys club, you know, no women, no girls allowed. Before the trip out, my dad was like on the phone with Ray and was kind of trying to figure out how to broach the subject of like, you know, is it okay if I bring her? Like she's, and Ray was like, and of course you'll be bringing Lizzie to the Queen Mary, right? And my dad was like, oh, thank God. Like, he was like, yes, like I wasn't sure it was okay. And so we all went to the Queen Mary that first visit too. It was actually the last dinner they did at the Queen Mary because Ray had his stroke shortly after that. But one of the photos in my show is actually a picture of us all outside the limo getting ready to like go to this dinner. And it's just, you know, a bunch of older men and me dressed on all black, like looking moody because I was eight. Did you appreciate who all the other people were at that point? I actually didn't really know who any of them were other than just that they were other well-known people in Ray's circle for the most part. Bill became a really great friend. He actually wrote me a letter about his first experience meeting Ray because I want to eventually put these images into a book. And so I want to include letters from certain individuals. And Stan, later, my dad had a copy of Tip of the Freeburg. And so I used to like listen to his recordings of his commercials and stuff all the time. And I just thought they were hilarious, especially the John, Marsha, John, Marsha, the whole bit he does. So no, as an eight-year-old, I did not appreciate the greatness I was surrounded by. But as I got older and I continued to go out there and continue to be part of this world, I started really getting more into the work of the people that I was surrounding myself with. And your exhibition is called I Saw It at Ray's House. Why that title? I had no idea what to call this show. You know, the show was so, the work itself is just so delicate and intimate and I didn't want to do any kind of disservice with the title. Someone on Facebook, I believe it was my friend Ron, had posted the cover of the Illustrated Man featuring the Dean Ellis artwork, the Dean Ellis painting. And I commented on it and I said something along the lines of this painting in, in person is so beautiful. Like it's just, it's really, you know, it's just such a beautiful painting. And he, 
he responded and was like, well, where can I see it? And I was like, oh, well, I saw it at Ray's house. And he just commented back and he was like, I think you found the title of your show. And he was right, you know, it was perfect. It was all these things, all these artifacts that people know from various things like the jar from Hitchcock Presents, which is there's a small sequence of the actual jar being epoxied shut for transport because who knows what that liquid actually is anymore. It just seems so perfect. It seems so respectful of what the work was, but also just so um, innocent in the fact, which is kind of how my relationship was. It was just this innocent, like I wasn't a fan when I started going out there. I grew to read Ray because I was surrounded by Ray because of my dad, you know, but I just had this kind of outsider's perspective of this house for years. So I photographed it in kind of that way where it was like, it was these incredible items just among a person's stuff. It's just the stuff he surrounded himself with happened to be the amazing artifacts from his career. And some of the photos do include people looking through the photos. I saw Ray, of course, and your father and John Ella and a few other people. Were you particularly looking to take photos of people or were you more interested in those sort of objects and effects? I've always been more drawn to photographing objects. I feel like portraits of people get complicated because people don't like the way they look in pictures all the time. So a lot of my work revolves around telling a story about a person based on their objects. But given the circumstances of what I was photographing and why I was photographing, it seemed really pertinent to include the players of the situation and to include like, just what a strange kind of circumstance it was for me to be in this situation. You know, like we were there because Ray had left these papers and these books and a lot of his personal work to my dad, you know, and that was just such an amazing kind of idea to be comprehending with while I was photographing. And then to know that all this work was going to be donated and archived in Indianapolis at the Bradbury Center. And so that these papers that I was touching in grimy boxes or rusting out filing cabinets or, you know, in the basement, in the garage, in the office, like, we're going to go to a, a center to be archived and preserved. And that was just a really kind of momentous thought to be wrestling with while I was shooting this. And so I thought it was important to document my dad interacting with the papers and the objects and John from the center interacting with the papers and the objects. And I also thought it was important to include images of Ray. You know, the project itself is a portrait of Ray and I think it was important to include him as part of that portrait, not just the pictures of him around the house or, you know, the childhood images I had. Those last visits were really powerful when he was still alive. They were, I mean, heartbreaking, but I thought that they should be a piece of this greater kind of story I was trying to tell. And the exhibition was put up in Indianapolis at one point. Did you get to see everything in its new home in, in uh, Bradford Centre? I did, Center? yeah. 
So the, the show first premiered in New York, in Tribeca in uh, 2015. And then in 2016, we had an exhibition with the center. And so it was my images and John Eller wrote these really great captions to kind of explain what was going on with every image what objects you were seeing, you know, the significance of these objects. And then they actually brought out some of the objects to the gallery space so that you could see the photo of them in place and then see the object in person for yourself. And so I managed to go out right before the show closed, which was really exciting because I got to see it in a, in a new environment. And we went down to the center and he showed me the recreation of Ray's office that was in the process of being, happening. And they had gotten pretty far along in it. So we have these photos of my first visit out. Ray had a director's chair that was in the basement. And so my dad, when I was eight was like, oh, okay, like get in the director's chair, like make sure we can see his name. I'm gonna take a picture. And so he took that picture. And then I took a similar one of him from 1998 or 99. And so then in the recreation of the office, both me and my dad like recreated these pictures that we took and kind of put them side by side. And it was like really fun to kind of see all the items again, but like, you know, all the stuff on top of his desk is now under a glass case. Like you can't touch the typewriter. And it was a very different experience. Yeah, I imagine it must have been. Are there any particular images in the, the sequence that are really close to your heart? There's a few. I mean, obviously the snapshots from when I was a kid are just really close to me because they were from before this sadder cause for photographing, you know, so there's a really great shot of me sitting on a rock in front of his Palm Springs house. And actually before coronavirus kind of took over, I had intended to try and go to Palm Springs and rent out that house because you can the person who bought it actually has it and you can rent it as like a, a Verbo or an Airbnb kind of situation. So I thought it would be like a really fun thing to be spending Ray's 100th birthday in his house. But alas, that did not work out. You know, there's a couple that I took in film when I was still in college that I really love. There's a one of the breakfast nook that just has like the tiniest, if you look really closely, there's like a tiny illustration of Ray on the table and it just has this beautiful light pouring in. It's one of the few black and white images. There's also one of a dinosaur wrapped in bubble wrap that I just think is like so funny. To me, it's not even one of the technically more interesting compositions or photos, but just the object itself is like so funny. And the fact that this was just like in the basement sitting on a shelf and I get comments about that one a lot. People really like that one. There are some images I like more than others, but editing this project, I had 4,000 images or something. Editing it down was incredibly hard, absolutely impossible. So the fact that I got it from 4,000 to you know the 70 plus images that are in the show now, maybe a minor miracle. <laughs> Every image is so important, you know, it's so important to the story and the building of the space. And just the the show in person, like 
at the gallery that I had it, they have this upstairs gallery space and the gallery space has this little bridge that goes into a second gallery space. And so when I initially had the show, I rented out both of them because this little bridge made me think of Ray's basement, you know? And so the images were shown in a way where they were designed to almost overwhelm you because there were so many of them. And then you had this little basement, little like kind of path you had across to see the rest of them. And they were framed and matted to almost feel like family slides. I had them matted in squares, regardless of their orientation, because I wanted it to feel almost scrapbook-esque, you know, like I wanted it to feel like a person going through their memories and going through like photos of a recollection, which is really what the show is to me, is like I would go through and I would discover new things that I'd never seen before in the many years I'd been going out there. And how big were the images in, in the physical exhibition? They were small, they were really small. I think most of them were around seven or eight inches on the long side. So they were all matted in 10 by 10 mats. I think the size made them more intimate, like a diary entry almost, you know, like you really had to get close to every image. You had to really want to peer into this kind of world. But when you looked back, just the vast amount of them felt overwhelming. And that's kind of how walking through this house was. You could spend some time with the details, but when you just looked at the vast amount of like boxes and books and shelves and things that needed to be cataloged and gone through and moved and packed, it was really overwhelming. And we spent one trip, I think we were out there for two weeks, and then we had to go back for a second trip for another week to really finish out everything that we had set out to do. It's a colossal task. I, I visited um, the Bradbury Centre about six months after all of that material arrived in Indianapolis. And I was, John Ella led me into this just big room full of filing cabinets. And he said, help yourself, have a look at anything you like. And it was o really overwhelming at that point. Yeah, he showed me that room uh, right after when we were out in Indiana. And I looked around and I was like, I can't believe all this stuff was in that house. It's incredible. It was just, and it was like rows, like meticulously organized, and which was so different than the experience of, like there's one image of just banker boxes towering up and you can see like John through a couple slivers and my dad through a couple other slivers. And it's like, that's just such a perfect way to encapsulate how these boxes were in the house. And then to just see them like neatly stacked and organized and there's rows you can walk down and there's filing cabinets that people are cataloging. and It was wild. Had you ever photographed anything remotely similar? Yes and no. For my senior thesis, I did a project about my dad. It was called Papa Bear. And I printed the whole show in platinum palladium. And it was similar in the sense that it was like the entire show was a portrait of one person. And it focused very heavily on images not of him as well as images of him. After that show, I had photographed Ray's house and I just sat on these images for a couple of years. I just didn't really know what to do with them. And then after that, I had had a neighbor. I grew up in New Jersey. And so our neighbor across the street was this older woman named Betty, who I, you know, knew I'd see her and I'd say hi, but I didn't know her very well. 
I'd been in her house a couple times and she had died. And so when she passed away, our next door neighbor was actually the executor of her will. So our next door neighbor gave us access to the house so that I could photograph her house. And so that was very similar in the sense of like, this person is no longer here, trying to kind of create an image and a portrait of this person that existed in this space based on what they chose to surround themselves by, the memories that they kept around. It was a really interesting experience because like in Ray's case, his house was full of photos and it was full of memorabilia and it was full of things fans had sent him, bottles of dandelion wine and paintings and books. And, and this other house that I photographed was there were very few photos in the house or like no photos at all which is so interesting as a photographer, right? That's the first thing you look for in a house or like, what are the photos? The only photos were antique carte visites that she had around and uh, she had a lot of mirrors. The books that she had were all like encyclopedia, you know, they were books that like look really nice on a shelf but aren't necessarily books you're like picking up to read. And so it was a just, it was a vastly different experience, you know, to walk through the, also the, a huge difference was that I knew Ray. I mean, I knew Ray at the end of his life, so I didn't know him as well as other people had, but I still knew him and I knew I had a relationship with him. Whereas this other woman, I, you know, had a casual acquaintanceship with her where I'd say hi across the street or, so it was similar in that project. I didn't have any photos of her. I actually went to, they did an estate sale of her house afterwards and I went and I like, bought this really beautiful old photo of her from 40 years ago or something. And so I had a show of this work as well. And I included this photo of her because I thought it was so important to have a visual of like who Betty was as a person, as well as the objects and like the photos of the house that I had taken. And I think you mentioned that you had read Bradbury. Can you remember at what point you first read Bradbury? Was it was it because of your dad or? It was definitely because of my dad. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the dark. So he brought me home, switch on the night, you know, and he would read that to me. And then I got a little older and I read The Halloween Tree. We would always, when I was in school, uh, every time he'd go out to California, we would always bring back a signed book for whoever my teacher was that year. And we would bring back books to donate to the school library. But I don't think I really started reading his like adult work until I was out there all the time, you know, like I read Fahrenheit in fifth grade for a book report and I hated it. I just, I couldn't, couldn't get through it. I thought it was so hard to read. And of course it was hard to read because it's not for a fifth grader to be reading, you know, it's like, it's got very beautiful imagery and metaphor in the way it's written and much deeper comprehension than my reading level was at at the time but I think there was just a trip where I was sitting because my dad would you know my dad would spend the day there and he would be going through papers and talking to Ray and we'd be there the entire day so at a certain point I as a child would get bored and I would go sit in the living room and so I started picking up books off his shelf which were mostly his books in the living room and I picked up The Illustrated Man and I just devoured that book. I like went through it so quickly and I loved it. His short stories were just beautiful and they were so well-written. It was just such a different experience 
than when I had read Fahrenheit as a fifth grader. And then I revisited these short stories. And so I read The Velt, which is terrifying, like a terrifying story. And then I read The Rocket Man, which makes me cry every time I read it. I actually wasn't able, I read that book, right, uh, that story right after Ray passed away and I wasn't able to read it for a few years afterwards because it just breaks my heart too much. But I read Marionettes Incorporated and I personally just have like a weird love of mannequins. And so to read this story where you could like buy a marionette of yourself to stand in to do the things you don't want to do, it's just such an attractive plot point. And just like, what a great story. The ending just like floored me. And so I just, I loved that book. And so after that, I started reading a lot more. I reread Something Wicked This Way Comes. I read uh, The Martian Chronicles, which, you know, my dad always talks about Mars is Heaven, which is also called, I guess, the third expedition in that one. And he, you know, that's the story that got him interested in Bradbury. He heard it on the radio and he was like, what is this kind of hokey, nostalgic story that I'm hearing? And then yet again, a great twist ending, you know? Um, and that, you know, I read that story and I was like, oh, I get it. Like, this is a great story. So yeah, I mean, I've read a lot of his work. I love the October country. I actually work at a bookstore and there's like this ongoing joke that like all my staff picks are Bradbury books because I'm like, 1000% biased in my choices, like, but I also love his essays. I uh, have a copy of Zen and the Art of Writing that's just totally beat up because I, anytime I have any kind of like creative block, I'll pull this book out and just pick any essay and read it. One of my favorites is like Drunk and in Charge of a Bicycle, where, who was it? I think it was Bernard Berenson wrote him is like the story that he tells and the entire plot is that he just needed the right person to believe in him you know and i'm like oh, this is so true it's so you know like creatively like anytime you get frustrated it's so discouraging and just having somebody say like i believe in your work and i believe what you're doing just makes all the difference you know and so i connect really deeply with those essays and I tell people to read them all the time because no matter what creatively you're trying to do, I mean, they're obviously geared towards writing, but I'm a photographer and I still find them to be helpful when I'm feeling challenged in some way to make work. What about the images and imagery in his books? The, the cover art and the interior oh, illustrations, that sort of thing. I love the story of him buying the painting of the the carnival train, you know, and he like saw it in a gallery and really wanted it and couldn't afford it. And so Minnie sold it to him in installments. That painting inspired something wicked, you know, which is amazing that like this art inspired this great story. But yeah, I love, I love the artwork. I constantly am looking at Minnie's work specifically. I mean, I have another ongoing joke at the bookstore I work at is that I have 30 copies of various books just because I'll find old pulps of them and I have to buy them because it's a different cover art than the 20 other copies that I already own. So I have like countless copies of the October Country. I have like British editions, I have 
they're not in any way like my dad's, which are all in impeccable condition and, you know, mine are all beat up and like chipping and feel like as pulp mass markets happen to do, but I just like love them for the art. You know, I have my reading copies and then I have my copies that I just like visually look at. Did you get your artistic tendencies from your father? I assume you must have done to some degree. Oh, yeah, from both my parents. Uh, my dad's an illustrator and my mom is a graphic designer. And so, of course, when I was a kid, they were like, please do anything else. Like, don't go into art. You can go into engineering. You can go into computers. And of course, I, as a kindergartner, was like, I'm going to go to Pratt. That's where dad teaches, you know? And of course, I went to Pratt. And, you know, once I was in high school, I think they they gave up. They were like, all right, she's going into the arts. We can't stop her. But yeah, it definitely helped a lot to have a house full of art growing up, you know, full of their art, full of their students' art. I mean, my dad had like countless illustrations students had gifted him throughout the years full of Ray's art. I mean, there's, you know, paintings my dad's bought off eBay and stuff that are like paintings Ray did. It really like makes a difference in just like what you see and it affects how you see art in general. Like, so of course I was like, yeah, I'm absolutely gonna go to art. I don't know what for what as a kindergartner, but I'm definitely gonna be an artist. Now, here comes my desert island question if you were to be marooned on a desert island and you could only have one bradbury item to occupy your time a book a story a film an object what would you choose that's such a hard question i mean normally i would pick a book but when you send me these questions i immediately thought of this sunflower that ray had so when i was a kid he had a ton of stuffed animals around the house, which just like I thought was the best, especially as a child. But he had this sunflower that like you would push a button and its eyes would open and its leaves would dance and it would sing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And his wife hated it, Maggie hated it. So anytime we played it, we would hear Maggie go, God damn it, turn that thing off. And I just loved it. I found it when we were actually going through the house in 2012 and 2013, you know, it didn't work anymore. It was all like the batteries had corroded or whatever, but it just like made me smile to like see that it was still there and just like think about how many times I had played that sunflower in the house. So you'd be happy to sit on a desert island with that playing all oh, day? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, what are you working on currently after this exhibition? What's coming up? For the last year or so, I've been in the process of photographing the bookstore that I work at. It's a pretty prominent New York bookstore. So I've been photographing the store after hours since it's usually just so packed with people that you nobody really knows what it looks like empty. And so I'd wanted to do this project since I started working there four years ago. And I just like never really knew how to bring it up. And finally, I just kind of started doing it. I had talked to, you know, one of the managers and he had given me the go ahead so i started coming in at like 7 a.m before most of the staff got there before the doors opened and i would just wander around and photograph the stacks and the tables and the hidden nooks of the store there's actually like artwork by a new york artist 
the powers like hidden throughout the stacks. And so I would like photograph some of that. And that project's really satisfying because it's entirely in film. You know, the project I did of Ray's house, I had a finite amount of time and I like couldn't risk not getting the images I wanted to get. So most of it's digitally shot, but this one I can really like go in, take time. So I'm not happy with how an image turned out. That thing isn't moving, it'll be there the next day. I can go back, I can shoot it again. So it's been really interesting because it's a similar premise and that it's, you know, yet another vacant space sort of, but this one's not really revolving around a specific person or it's not really a portrait of a person. It's more of a hidden insight into an institution. So it's been kind of a new experience to shoot. Can you say what the name of the bookstore is? Sure, it's uh, it's the Strand Bookstore. Ah, right, yes. That's very famous, yeah. Yeah, so it's been enjoyable to go in early. It's also just like a nice way to like, you know, the daily grind of like going into work every day and like you go in early and you get to like kind of re-fall in love with this bookstore that you had a very different relationship with before you worked there. You love it either way, but once you know the inner workings, like it loses some of its magic. And so to shoot it in this new way has reignited this magic. If our listeners would like to find out more about your work, where is a good place for them to look? I have a few places that I post a lot of work. So I have my website, which is just my name. It's elizabethamalbright.com. And then I have an Instagram account where I post more regularly and it's less polished work, like individual shots I'm taking while I'm, you know, walking around or on vacation or, and so that's E underscore Nahum Albright. And then I also have an account for my project about the Strand, which is called Strand After Hours. Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Once again, my thanks to Elizabeth Nahum Albright for joining me today. I'll be sure to put some links to her exhibition and Instagram pages on my website, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. Now, let me tell you about next week's episode of Bradbury 100. It will be released on the 22nd of August, which is the 100th anniversary of Ray Bradbury's birth. To mark the occasion, who better to have as a guest than my good friend Jonathan R. Eller. John is the author of three biographical books on Ray Bradbury, and he is also the director of the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. So please join me next time for a special Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100